the response needs to be there, uh, the outcome of the animal somehow, whether it's from a consumer perception perspective or the true health of the animal. And, and you and I both know how our, our producers, they care for their animals. I Absolutely. mean, it's not strictly profit. It's, it's a, it is a true sustainability uh, action. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. DSM Furmanish. Mycotoxins can threaten feed and cattle performance. DSM Furmanish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds in the beef industry. Today, we are joined by my friend and, former, and a former professor of mine from the days at Kansas State University, Dr. Dale Blasey. Dr. Blasey was born and reared on his family farm and ranch in Southeast Colorado near Trinidad. He received his bachelor's in animal sciences at Colorado State and his master's in beef systems management also at Colorado State University. He continued his education at the University of Nebraska, where his dissertation addressed protein supplementation strategies for beef cows and growing cattle. After earning his Ph.D. degree, he accepted an appointment as a livestock specialist in South Central Kansas at Hutchison for Kansas State University Extension. In 1997, he transitioned to the Department of Animal Sciences and Industry at Kansas State University as a state beef specialist, where he currently has a teaching, research, and extension appointment. I am so excited to talk more about Dr. Balzi's research, extension work, and his industry involvement in depth. Dr. Balzi, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. How are you? Good morning, Brandy. It's great to be here. Um, I haven't, we haven't actually seen each other in quite a while. I don't get up to Kansas, uh, to K-State in Manhattan much as, as much as I would like to. But uh, when I saw that you were on the schedule for the podcast, I got very excited. So I'm really pumped to talk to you today. Me as well. Yeah. Um, so to start off with, for those of you who may not know as much about you, um, can you tell us about how you got involved in the beef industry and your career path so far? I just touched like a very on a very small part of it in your bio, but if you can, you know, bring up bring us up to speed, please. Well, Brandy, you alluded to it, but I, I was born on a farm and ranch uh, outside of Trinidad, Colorado, and so I've been around agriculture my entire life. And as a young man growing up, I was active in 4-H participated uh, at the county and certainly at the state levels in Fort Collins. And it was it was a given that uh, about the early 1980s with, when the farm crisis was occurring uh, with two other brothers, my, my parents and my the other members of my family, my, my grandparents and my great uncle and aunt, there was simply no room for us to uh, come back to the to the farm and ranch. And Long story short, uh, I pursued uh, my undergraduate in animal sciences, and when I begun my master's through my immersion in the cooperative extension service, uh, my thoughts initially were to become a county agent in the state of Colorado. And through my work, my research at Colorado State, 
Uh, the light bulb went on for pursuing an advanced degree in ruminant nutrition, specifically mama cow, beef cow work, and growing calf nutrition. And from there, it, it's uh, I haven't looked back. Well, I have to say personally, I'm really glad that the county extension agent was not the path you that you went down. I mean, I am selfishly would not have got to me and work with you and have your mentorship throughout college. So I, uh, so I'm glad that you came to K State and and went that route. And, and you know, I tell you what, one of the the beautiful things about my career is that I have had the opportunity to work with the county and district extension agents throughout Kansas and throughout the greater Midwest. And it's been a it's been a privilege, and uh, I've enjoyed that interaction very much. Your cattle are constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. Now you can know if mycotoxins are present in your feed and what you should do about it. DSM Furmanish offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contaminations and solutions to combat those mycotoxins. Don't let mycotoxins contaminate your performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH dash NA to learn more. Well, I know that you've left a, a mark on a lot of people, not only myself, but my husband, Hyatt, who is, he's not here. I'll, for the viewers at home who are listening, he's not sitting here. But um, Hyatt and I are both department or products of the Kansas State University Department of Animal Science. And so um, well, I, like many of others, are appreciative of the impact that you've had. Um, you mentioned 4-H. We are just we are just going down our foray into 4-H. We're just starting to get and we now have a kid that's old enough to do that. And um it's already very time consuming. So I <laughs> hang on because it's it's a twelve year ride and it's such an opportunity for young people to develop their public speaking skills and their interpersonal relationships with their with their peers and with their the leadership and it just sets a really wonderful course way for for young lives as, as they develop as you fully appreciate. Yeah, I mean, hi and I were both in four H growing up. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I just like now as a parent didn't realize how time consuming all these kid things would be. So I'm have, we are both having to, you know, pull back on other things. So we have time for her. So, and that's what, you know, parenthood and having kids is all about, but it's definitely something we're having to adjust to. Um, my, a lot of my experience with you at K-State came from uh, a few research projects that I did at the stalker unit. And so I know that's, you know, kind of one of your babies there at K-State is the stalker unit. And for our listening audience, both international and, and then maybe who isn't as familiar with, with running stalker cattle or a stalker unit, um, could you just explain that unit to our listeners, the concept of stalkers, just anybody who may not be as familiar with that and kind of your role at the unit? Sure, Brandy. Uh in the United States, uh, uh, the stalker segment represents that intermediate step from the post-weaning phase of the baby calf, once it's weaned from its dam, to the point where it is uh, grown and eventually enters into a uh, finishing facility. So basically, it manages the growth and management and health of these animals from about weaning weight of about 500 pounds to about 800 to 850 pounds upon entry into the finishing facility. Yeah, and so at the unit, you know, what all happens there? You know, what are you doing there on a day-to-day basis or, you know, what is it used for, that kind of thing? Well, the, the this particular facility is one of many in our department here at the Animal Sciences and Industry Department. Uh, we have commercial cow-calf. We have our purebred unit. We have the stalker unit. 
the feedlot facility. Uh, we have our meats lab, uh, our CADSU, our artificial breeding service unit, poultry unit, dairy, uh, basically every facet of animal agriculture is represented within our department and very, very close to campus proper. It's not like uh, a person has to, uh, so, so the students have an opportunity to attend classes and uh, work as well, which in this day and age with the number of people really not as the opportunities to actively grow up on a farmer ranch, we really afford the, these opportunities for our, our young students. Uh, and we have in our population of undergraduates, we have a large proportion of, of young people aspiring to be veterinarians. Mm -hmm. And so these units all afford the students the opportunity to work as well as to go to classes as well. Specific at the beef stalker unit, uh, this property is about uh, 1,200 acres of native grass, which it's part of our Flynn Hills here in Kansas. And so it affords us the opportunity to do research for our stalker operators that are located throughout the Flynn Hills and down in your neck of the woods, South mm -hmm. Brandy into the Osage Hills of Oklahoma. We also at the facility have uh, a receiving facility comprised of 40 pens, which we use for highly stressed, uh, newly arrived, highly stressed calves that we, uh, in this case today, we have calves from uh, Tennessee and Northern Alabama uh, mm -hmm. that we're growing. And what we do basically is to emulate exactly what our producers are doing. Mm -hmm. And in doing so to answer the many questions that they have to help them to be better, more efficient, uh, managers of their of their livestock and their land resources. That's great. I mean, that's a as a whole, all of the units at the, at K State, and I can speak from experience, are extremely valuable because I don't know many universities where a student can go a half mile from campus or for a half mile from like campus proper, and because the units are technically on campus, and be able to be hands on with working with hogs or cattle or do research like that. And that's such a huge asset to Kansas State University and students. And so this is my go to K-State plug for, <laughs> for anybody listening. But um, moreover, like just having those kind of the, like the stalker research facility in Kansas, like what a true value that is to our producers in the in Kansas to be able to have the outcomes of that research and have you reporting on those through extension and things like that. Uh, you were speaking about some of the research. Can you share about any research that might be going on right now at the stalker unit? Well, at present, uh, we're doing a follow-up. to. We did some work earlier this spring looking at vitamin uh, circulating vit uh, serum vitamin D levels in uh, yes. calves, uh, looking at it from an immune pers uh, perspective, trying to improve, enhance immunity. And at present, we have about 480 calves on trial. Uh, looking at four different treatments, and it's so premature, I can't even speak to the the, the morbidity uh, and everything with the various treatments, but um, have a very capable young lady from Iowa who's pursuing her master's degree, and this is, a, this is her master's project, pulling blood and looking at uh, the cytokines and the various aspects or indicators, the blood gases, everything that may indicate if we can utilize vitamin D as a nutraceutical in our beef cattle industry. That's something that you are 
you know, that you have worked on a decent amount, vitamin D supplementation in those newly arrived calves. Can you talk more about like the importance of that? Um, well, can you expound upon that maybe? Of course. And, and there's a vast amount of literature. And, and I got to tell you, uh, the idea of pursuing going down this rabbit hole, because if you go to the literature, there's really very little literature available on vitamin D. And everybody assumes that the acquiring the, the necessary amounts of vitamin D through the sun is, is sufficient for animal health. And uh, there's been some really good work uh, from 2015 out of the Meat Animal Research Center, which basically showed that in many cases throughout the, the year, uh, that the levels, the concentrations necessary to sustain health in an animal is, is really uh, insufficient. And, and we tend to uh, routinely provide vitamin D as a vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. That's that. it's, it's the form that is necessary to go to the liver and then to the kidneys to make it an activated version form for the, for the body to, to utilize. But uh, a lot of work, uh, and through this whole COVID experience, and I, I welcome your, your viewership to, <laughs> to purview the, the YouTube and just type in vitamin D and health. And the stark contrast, the correlations, whether it's causal or not, is is up in the air. But the importance of vitamin D, especially for people they saw in rest homes that never had an opportunity to mm -hmm. acquire the natural vitamin D uh, through the sun and the conversion on the skin and the relationship with uh, respiratory uh, acute respiratory events, there's a strong, there's a very, very strong uh, correlation to that. And that kind of turned a light bulb on in my head because all too many times, I mean, we're all mammals, we're animals really at the basic sense and the various things that, that impact people. I mean, it needs to be looked at and vitamin D analysis in and of itself is a very complex and expensive process which mm -hmm. might help to explain why there hasn't been much work done in with this particular vitamin and and it's a it's a it's a it's a part of the adek the fat soluble vitamins right. and the requirements are you know the storage of the vitamin into the adipose tissue of being a person or or an animal the the levels necessary uh it varies. It's stored there. And what we uh, did in March was to basically travel to Dixon, Tennessee. We have an order buyer there. And that, for your audience, that is a person that is contacted with a specific order for a, a specific number of calves, a specific sex of a calf that you want. In this case, we, we purchased heifers right. and a certain weight, a specific weight. So we drove and bled the cattle before they were put on the truck. And our, our unit of measurement for trucking is one transport of about 50,000 pounds of beef. So we transported about 102 head. We okay. bled them before they got on the truck. We immediately drove back to Manhattan, Kansas. They were unloaded and we, we bled them again. And we bled them at, at time periods like days 15, 30, and ultimately 60. And we also provided uh, uh, various levels. We fed a vitamin D3, 
-hmm. We also fed uh, a hydroxy, a 25-hydroxy, which is an activated version uh, that is readily, per it's available for poultry, for swine. Uh, it, it's produced by a, a, Swiss, a Swiss company uh, called DSM. So we're in okay. partnership. We're in partnership with them. And coincidentally, the swine team here in, in animal sciences and industry are working with them as well, looking at from more of the calcium perspective. Um, mm -hmm. But also there, there's issues and questions regarding immunity as well in the swine industry. But we pulled the blood samples and, and what, we were, what we determined at the end of this 60 day, uh, and it was really a kind of a pretrial. We wanted to assert, we wanted to determine that what we were feeding in terms of a half milligram or a milligram of this activated vitamin D was actually being observed in the circulating serum of the animals. And it came back that yes, it was. Yeah. So we, fast forwarding to October, over a two week period, we received five semi loads of heifers. Uh huh. Uh, three loads one week and the balance the two two loads the following week and they're under a very uh, we're under a very aggressive trial to evaluate and we're looking at uh, vitamin D3 the half milligram the one milligram and a combination of vitamin D and A as an apple yeah the retinol that is uh, the the uh, the formalized uh, name of the of the product, in in and we're evaluating the circulating levels that are in the animals, and we're following the health. We're looking at case fatality and uh, well over. I will tell you today with your podcast that our uh, morbidity rate with these calves is about fifty five percent, which means that more than half of the calves got sick. Gotcha and. You know, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is just try to put a stake in the ground and determine where this vitamin D fits in this new world of beef health and the whole issues of antimicrobial usage and trying to figure out if there's a way with animal husbandry and natural ingredients, if we can have a, a impact on the outcome of animal health. And the one thing that I, I want to I want to tell your audience is that beef cattle, the way they're marketed, it's it's not from the lack of animal husbandry of our animal owners. It's in in many parts of the United States, particularly in the southeast, even in eastern Kansas, uh, the average herd size is about twenty, maybe thirty cows. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And we can't afford to put twenty head of calves on a on a gooseneck and travel them across the country. Right. They're assembled in an auction market. And as I indicated earlier before with the order buyer, they're in the, they're in the audience and they're buying the animals specific to the orders that they've been given to fulfill an order. And so these cattle are much like naive kindergartners. Yeah. In many cases, many cases, these animals have not been immunized. They've not had any, uh, They've not been treated because the ownership does not have an animal restraining a, a shoot, if right. you will. Yep, absolutely. Uh, or a, a crush. You, there's a lot of names throughout the United the world for the yeah. a restraining device, but folks don't have the pasture to manage their bulls on an on a year round basis. So these calves, 
in many cases are born year round. There's yeah. not a defined breeding season. And as a consequence, these cattle are they're commingled together, they're put onto a truck, they're they're faced with uh, all these these stressors. And as a consequence, the animal's immunity in many cases breaks down. Absolutely. And uh, the result is what we call in the industry bovine respiratory disease. Uh, mm-hmm. BRSV, uh, BRSD, BRD, uh, and, and it's there's some initial viruses that attack the animal, and then there's some subsequent uh, opportunistic uh, bacteria that, that are secondary to the initial insult. And it's much like a, a human cold. I, I don't want to liken that. I'm not a DVM to go there. <laughs> but okay. you, you initially get a virus, and in many cases, you might be able to kick the virus out and not have it, but normally there's a secondary and then you get an infection. And I'm myself dealing with a two-week foray with a sinus infection. And uh, you hope to kick stuff, but it happens. And with animals, with beef cattle, typically having smaller lung capacity, their an- anatomy is such that like they're one half lung size of a of a horse for example okay. they don't have the the lung capacity and as a consequence you have this invasion of the bacteria and all the, the cattle get sick they get feverish uh yeah. they get lethargic uh they get droopy and they get lung damage mm-hmm. and so our the idea with this whole thing is to keep cattle from getting sick in the first place right or to help boost their immune system Mm-hmm. So that they're better able to mount a, a defense against these these pathogen insults. So that's interesting. At the in the beginning, when we first we were first talking about your research on this, you had said that like uh, you had, were interested in going down this rabbit hole on vitamin D. And I think, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like most research is a rabbit hole because it's we're trying to find a way to be 1% better, improve welfare right. 1% or improve profitability 1% or efficiency 1%. Like research is done so we can try to find some way to improve upon what we're already doing. And so I, you know, I applaud you and the beef industry for there is a lot of consumer pressure to move away from antibiotics. And so um, if this is a way to do that, then that's, you know, that's absolutely worthwhile. And, and you know, there's so many questions that come from this. And, and again, it's, I, I don't like looking at preliminary data. That, that clouds my judgment that may have an impact on the actual outcome of the study. So I really try to remain blinded to any raw means or anything like that. But think about the, the in, in, increased amount of shades that are used in our beef cattle industry. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. other the other unspoken thing is that black-hided cattle are less efficient at absorbing vitamin D. And if you go to the human literature, African Americans, Hispanics do not have the efficiency of vitamin D absorption as their white counterparts. And again, it comes back to that analogy with animals. And so do we acerbate the situation when we put black-hided cattle underneath shades during the peak of summer? Because I will tell you from shade research that we've recently accomplished here at K-State at the stalker unit, guess what? 
animals like people love the shade, especially yes. when it's very hot outside. <laughs> I am heat averse. I love the shade. <laughs> yes. And, and so is there an increased requirement when these animals are during the peak ray of the sun, when they're underneath the shade, they're missing out the opportunity to acquire the, the necessary vitamin D to, to help their body system. It's interesting because, I mean, you're talking about shading, cattle shading up, which makes absolute sense. Like I look outside in the summer and my red cows don't shade up near as quickly as the black ones. But it just goes to show like how, I mean, there is no siloed reaction in in the body. Like it's not just you do one thing and this reacts here and it doesn't trigger another one. I was having a conversation with um, Dr. Oh, well, uh, if you remember Dr. Lily Edwards Calloway, who used to work there at K-State, sure. master professor, and then also Kim Stackhouse Lawson, uh, Dr. Lawson from who's at Colorado State now. And we were having a discussion about how those reactions, like when you adjust a sustainability type measure and how that may affect like negatively or positively a welfare measure. And it goes the same for nutrition and welfare and physiology and, and all these things you're talking about. And so again, you might get 1% here, but 5% on the outcome. So it's just, it just speaks to the necessity of, you know, continual research. Like we're never going to run out of things to research because we're always going to try to improve. And we always are learning more about the different systems and how the, you know, the pulleys and gears inside of us. The interactions, you know, the secondary and tertiary outcomes yeah. from a subtle change can, can really ripple through a production system. And, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, uh, all what you mentioned from the, the Colorado state folks is, is spot on. We got to, we got to think about those things that we might be tilting one way or the, or the other. But, you know, I mean, cost is another thing. I mean, decisions that a manager makes with inclusion of any anything that is good for the animal, I mean, they got to balance it. It's always a balancing act. And, and especially when you multiply it by the thousands that are in several of our several thousands of cattle that can be in a commercial feedlot, it can be a $10,000 a month decision. And yeah. the response needs to be there. Uh, the outcome of the animal somehow, whether it's from a consumer perception perspective or the true health of the animal. And, and you and I both know how our, our producers, they care for their animals. I Absolutely. mean, it's not strictly profit. It's, it's a, it is a true sustainability uh, action. There's pride in ownership of the livestock, of the land. And, you know, we just finished up a, a huge study on burning pastures at different mm -hmm. times of the year and trying to control a noxious weed, a, an invasive plant. And what are the comp what are the outcomes from that? Well, I can tell you, working with an entomologist, uh, a, a Cassandra Olds, she is a very charming great scientist and i encourage you down the road to get her on your your podcast but south african born and she and her students have looked at the implications of season of burn on hornfly populations in the pastures as well as ticks huh and so you know back to the earlier comment about okay we're going to burn and control uh these invasive plants is what we call it here Cerecia lespediza, mm -hmm. and I might add this is work being conducted uh, upon the uh, by the leadership of Dr. Casey Olson, 
a colleague of mine, but we try to control that 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 plant that's invasive and very hard to control. And one of the side benefits is uh, we're controlling insect populations that are deleterious to our beef cattle production. So there's a you know wildlife, songbirds, butterflies, all those things really kind of tie together in the complete ecosystem. Absolutely. We, it's interesting you bring Cerecia up because we, there is, it's an epidemic down here with the Cerecia where we're at particularly. Um, and we actually, this was our first year we did it. We actually did a fall burn on Cerecia to try to kick it in the bud, basically, because it's just, it's, as you well know, as you just said, it is so hard to control. And so we did that, tried that this year. Um, I have not been over there to see what it looks like really in depth. I should ask Hyatt uh, what it looks like because it's a ways over there. But yeah, we definitely have tried that because it's, we can't keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting right. results and spraying it wasn't absolutely working. So we're trying something different and hoping that that works or maybe in conjunction with some other management strategies. But you're right. Everything is intertwined. And you again, you don't just pull one lever and get one reaction. It can cause lots of other things. And if that will get rid of some of the flies, I hate flies so much. I just hate bugs. And these 70 degree days in November are a little, uh, as my seven-year-old would say, annoying because the flies will not go away. So I would like for the flies and the ticks to go away as well. You, you know, another thing that Dr. Olds has found, she's been studying are the dung beetles, which is a really great barometer for soil health. Oh, okay. And, uh, she's been studying that as a cause of season of burn, trying to look at the what the impacts are on those beneficial insects to the ecosystem. And so it's so intertwined, as you said, and, and you know, the days of just looking at average daily gain or performance alone, we got to look at the big picture. And, uh, you know, that's what we try to do here is uh, we do, we, we do a portion of discovery research, but a lot of it is trans translational you know we 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 try to do things in a in an ordered manner so that the results that we obtain can be evaluated and if deemed necessary by our our end group our users there it is and it's it's unbiased uh yeah we do a lot of sponsored work but we do a lot of independent work as well we have to pay the bills around this place and uh but we do the best we can and uh it's, it's, you know, we have to train the next generation of scientists, animal scientists. Mm -hmm. And there's a, amazing how many pre-vets, I mentioned earlier at this podcast, how many students come in here aspiring to be veterinarians. And through the interaction of their courses and stuff, Brandy, they become animal scientists. And mm -hmm. it's not any less, certainly. I mean, whether it's reproductive physiology or swine nutrition or ruminant nutrition or meat science, Mm -hmm. there, there's a there's a lot of different uh, tangents that one can go and, and build a very fulfilling career and working with young people or working with the industry that they love. Uh, there's just so many opportunities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, maybe he doesn't want people to know this, but like, hi, it started out pre-vet. And, you know, now he's he's a, he has his Ph.D. in swine nutrition and, re and physio reproductive physiology, and he loves his job. He often says that he feeds pigs and he loves it. So you never know, you know, what will happen when you start down the research path. Um, 
I keep coming back to this vitamin D, but, you know, using like natural ingredients and things like that to improve the, the health of the like newly arrived calves. Have you done any research or like what are your or heard anything about like some of these products like um, like Zimpro has one called a, like called the Profusion Drench. Um, have you heard anything about those? Or, or I, I have. I, I've heard from some of the producer trials conducted here in, in Kansas. Uh, very, very positive outcomes. Uh, anything we can do. And, and surprising, I, I ran into one of the Zenpro technic, technical, one of my counterparts, and I asked him why they didn't have vitamin D included in it. And, and apparently they ran out of room in their formulation. But not knocking that at all. I mean, but they have seen uh, some positive outcomes from its use with, with stress cattle, of course. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be used on any, I think it can be used for uh, anything, not only just like shipping, but, you know, like at weaning and, and such like that. I've heard good things. There's another one I've heard of um, called Fair or something. Um, I can't remember the yeah. name. Yeah, uh, Fair Appease. I've heard of a couple different ones. And, and I've not seen any replicated trial data with it. Uh, a lot of anecdotal information out there circulating. And, and I really, uh, I, I will not make any comments positive or negative to that. Uh, I mean, we, and they, in fairness to them, they approached me, uh, oh, maybe eight months ago to do a, a trial looking at long yearlings. And the stalker unit simply didn't have that animal model to, to even oh. pursue that concept. But, you know, kudos to them if it works, if it truly works. I mean, that's that's the thing that we always – that's why it's good to have the university take a look at stuff and uh, let the chips fall where it may, right? And, you know, it's easy to do a producer trial, uh, but so many things are not properly – replicated we don't have the numbers to do a true statistical analysis and really figure out whether it was in fact a true effect or if it's part of the air term and we throw it out i mean we 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 need to have an evaluation and a lot of companies step up and and they do go through those uh, and it's reported and then like i said earlier producers make up their mind yeah well absolutely we uh i mean that you make a great point i i don't no, I haven't read any research studies behind either of those, but I know that we use the Zinpro uh, Profusion Drench on like a small group of calves. Uh, we have a very small herd of spring calving cows for one reason or another. I'm trying to get away from the spring calving and we just, because it's winter calving and we just haven't been able to get away from these few calves. <laughs> but we, when we wean our, you know, the larger component of her, of the herd in like the late spring early, you know, late spring, we will, uh, we're kind of planning to use that again. So um, hope to see some more positive benefits there. But it's just interesting to kind of see that mindset be embraced, you know, across the beef industry. And I think that's encouraging. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, we're getting away from the needle. Uh, Mm -hmm. People are really adverse uh, to anything associated with the needle. And, and it really comes back you know, at one time years ago, I guess when maybe I was even a youngster, a lot of animal science departments used to be called animal husbandry. It wasn't animal science. It was husbandry. And that word in, implies the care and management, the thoughtful care and management of 
livestock. I mean, being a good manager, doing those basics like clear, clean water, quality feed, timely management, uh, all those basic elements of being a good husbandry person, right? Uh, and, and I think sometimes uh, over time, uh, you know, we've. I think we're coming back to it for sure. For sure. Oh yeah, you know, I believe so. Yeah. With a lot of our BQA programs talking about animal comfort and animal handling and management, it's about tranquilo. You know, being calm and yeah. managing animals so that you don't elevate their cortisol levels mm-hmm. and create this cascade, this stress, right, to these baby calves or to these newly newly weaned calves that have traveled 1500 miles and they're like a lost set of kindergartners getting off the, the bus for the first time and uh, you want to avoid all those snotty noses and those mm-hmm. late night fevers <laughs> yes. all those things that that tend to happen yeah and good quality nutrition i think that is a good balanced diet again humans we talk about having a healthy diet uh mm-hmm. and same thing with our animals it really is common sense. You oh, absolutely. About it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of highly stressed calves and newly weaned, um, I know that something that you have worked a lot on is using limiting, using limited feeding as a way to manage some of those highly stressed calves. And we have done that on our ranch, limit feeding, but with a cat, well, you know, with a cow herd, but I've never really looked into much of it doing with those highly stressed calves. So do you want to speak about that? Like, well, how that sure. philosophy with feed efficiency and such? Of course. So, so, so one of the one of the symptoms of when a calf is sick, just like a human, they don't want to eat. They lose their appetite. Mm-hmm. And and what we try to do, and and it it is incredibly costly to the body to mount an immune defense. Uh, you know, I had my case of COVID a, a couple years ago, and I dropped thirteen pounds. Ooh over about six or seven days, I, I, I quit eating and I was just dealing with mounting a response. And fortunately I did, but, uh, with limit feeding, uh, we've looked at it from a couple of different perspectives. As you are fully aware, Kansas is, we can't avoid drought. It seems to be everywhere. It springs up every couple years. I don't care what corner of the state you're talking about, but eventually we'll see it dry weather. Yeah, it's somebody's turn every year. So, absolutely. And so we have a shortage of roughage. And with growing diets, uh, those, that, those growing diets that we use for cattle that weigh between five and 850 pounds, we'll tend, to, we'll tend to grow them at the rate of anywhere from two pounds to two and three quarter pounds. We don't want them to become overly fleshy. We want to put some frame on these calves, we want to get them prepared. For the feedlot, where the intent is to efficiently and effectively convert those animals to their mature weight. If they're too fleshy, they're not going to perform. It'll reflect on the on the closeout sheets of the feedlot. So they don't want fleshy or fat cattle going into their feedlots. So with limit feeding, what we have done from a health perspective is instead of, we need to get energy in these calves. Uh-huh. Okay, that's a given. So instead of using something like corn, which has a lot of starch in it, mm-hmm. and what starch does in the rumen brandy is if it's not properly controlled, it can create a low ruminal pH 
and basically cause a belly ache to those calves. We mm -hmm. call it we call it subacute acidosis. Mm -hmm. And so, in lieu of using a lot of starch in our diets, what we've been utilizing is uh, corn co-products such as wet corn gluten feed. Uh, there's a product from Cargill called Sweet Bran. It's it's highly controlled. The product is very consistent, and we utilize it. And we feed it at 40% of the diet on a dry matter basis. And what it is, is yes, it's got protein in it, mm -hmm. but it has corn fiber because the extraction processes for either the corn sweeteners that we see in our soda pop mm -hmm. or for the ethanol production from the distiller's grains right. basically removes the, the vast majority of the starch. There's still some there, yeah. but, but what is remaining from the corn kernel is, is bran, corn bran. Mm -hmm. And what, as, as ruminant nutritionists, what we have discovered is that this bran is very highly digestible. So it doesn't elicit the pH response in the rumen as we observe with the starch. So we, we feed this highly concentrated diet and we, we limit feed them. Let me back up and say that a calf that is presented as much feed that it wants to eat will consume on a percent of its body weight anywhere from 2.75, maybe upwards to 3% of its mm -hmm. body weight. So a five weight calf will consume this simple number, 3%, 15 yeah. pounds of dry matter. What we are doing with limit feeding is restricting them to about 2.2% of their body weight. Okay. But instead we're intensifying the nutrients in what they get in that 2.2% and we're meeting their needs. And right there's sufficient leftover for them to gain our targeted gain of about two and a quarter pounds a day. What the limit feeding allows us to do with these newly arrived calves is they get fed once a day mm -hmm. and they're fed a limited amount. So they're, it's kind of like going on a diet, if you will, the gut adjusts to this thing, the liver adjusts to this, but they be, they're habitual animals, as you fully well know. They're, they're creatures of habit. They know that they'll get fed once a day, and it typically takes about six hours to clean their bunks. So mm -hmm. their bunks are completely stripped clean. There's no leftover roughage, such as corn silage or hay or anything. It's clean. The rest of the day, the, the 18 to 20 hours, they sit down, chew their cud, get a drink of water when they want, and they're just relaxed. That's it. Their body is utilizing, the rumen is digesting, and they're getting their needs met. So when we have a sick calf and they're only being fed once a day, and as we're feeding them with the tractor and our, our feed wagon, if a calf does not want to come up to the bunk, it's much, much easier to detect a sick calf. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, we, we utilize that behavior to help the, the health provider uh -huh. uh, to give an early sign that uh, a calf might be sick. It's, there's people that are incredibly skilled at picking a sick calf. And many, many cattle, because they are prey, uh, really do a good job of masking they will hide it. They are very good at hiding it. Yes, until it's too late and you got a, you're running 104, 105 fever and you got that lost time and getting that lung repaired and you get subsequent lung damage. And what we call, you know, realizers or chronics or cattle that have been treated 
twice, uh, at least two times, and then a third time with a basically kind of a generic antibiotic. And, and then basically we kick them out on grass because their, their lungs are the, the capacity for oxygen, oxygen exchange has been significantly hampered. And in many cases during a very hot day or a very stressful period on these calves, they will die. Their body simply cannot exchange the oxygen. Right. So we try to maintain those lungs. And so early, early detection through the use of limit feeding, it, we feel after you know doing this work since 2016, looking at it under a variety of, you know, feeding it in the night, feeding in the morning, uh, during winter time to try to feed at night to see if we could generate that fermentation in the rumen to heat the animals up to reduce their maintenance requirements. Uh, we've done all fashions with limit feeding and with this vitamin D work, we're able to precisely, we're not throwing a bunch of feed into the bunk and we top dress this product on this limit fed diet. So we're very, from our earlier validation work in March, we feel very comfortable that we can deliver with this smaller quantity of feed to what these animals need. That's, um, I mean, that all, again, everything is just interrelated and that makes so much sense. You were talking about like their prey animals. I'm trying to get really good at like looking to see if a calf is pumping out of the side of like out of my peripheral vision to see, you know, if they're doing that really hard breathing because the minute you look at them, they stop, you know? And so that is uh, Hyatt is a lot better at that than I am. Well, I tell you what, Contrary, I, I think if you talk with a lot of managers out there, the, the, and I'm not being a sexist when I say this, but I'm saying women are more sensing and they tend to be more focused and they, they have that ninth sense for detecting an animal that's in distress and not showing it. I agree with that. I will, I will take that comment and I appreciate there you it. Go. I, I agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with it. Um, so... Well, just to change direction a little bit, when you are not revolutionizing the industry with a new research or, or something like that, what what do you stay busy with? Um, I I enjoy I enjoy fishing. Uh, my family has a ranch. My brothers and I, along with our mother, have a have a place outside of Trinidad. And when we do have some three or four or five day period of time and a planned family work day. We'll, uh, we'll be building fence, repairing fence, taking out 70, 80-year-old cedar posts that have been there, well, for 70 or 80 wow. years. <laughs> a long time. And uh, basically putting in uh, T-posts and setting them to standard for the uh, resident uh, antelope population that's out there so we fit within the guidelines of the NRCS. Yeah. Um, that, I love the fish. Uh, we, we belong to a car club. And uh, we also, uh, I also, growing up, uh, a lot of Native American, uh, I love to walk and, and top surface hunt. Oh, and okay. For, you know, our ranches, right, the, the Santa Fe Trail goes right through our place. Oh, And cool. in certain areas, you can actually see the ruts from the wagons. Wow. And uh, so I enjoy the, the history aspects uh, of how the place was settled. Uh, uh, I read a lot of history books. Uh-huh. Uh, I enjoy that. My eyes aren't quite as good as they used to be. So the reading is a little bit more. My attention span is, is slipped, but I, I do enjoy and I appreciate the history 
of, oh, like, of the Midwest of, of the of the West. That's very interesting. That's cool. Very cool about the Santa Fe Trail going through your ranch. That's awesome. It's time for our famous three. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy AgriSlat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy AgriSlat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Well, you mentioned a book, and that's a great segue into our wrap-up questions. So for those of us who are constant listeners, we ask the same three questions of every guest. And I did give Dr. Blasey a heads up on these, so he's not getting uh, blindsided with this. But so to start with, what is your favorite beef or cattle-related book or resource? We've had some people give like a website as their favorite resource or something. Sure. Well, I mentioned I like history. Mm-hmm. And and another thing I failed to mention that the uh, Goodnight Loving Trail went very very close to our ranch as well. So uh, I'm really interested in post Civil War uh, the cattle drives, uh-huh. uh, the 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 chuck wagons, how all this, how the the commerce of beef, and and one book that comes to mind is is really good. It's out of print, but you can you can find copies of it. It's called Ladder of Rivers. Well, Ladder of Rivers, that sounds like a really interesting one. I hope our audience, um, I have not had that as an answer yet. So hopefully our audience will take that recommendation from you. That is uh, very interesting. So going to a book that is not related to the beef industry that you are currently reading or is maybe one of your favorites. Well, it, it's it's an interesting book. And, and I sometimes I go back to it from time to time. But it's called, and it's a book by Robert Greene. It's called The 48 Laws of Power. Oh, and it talks and it uses a lot of, again, there's some history, there's a lot of history in there, but he uses the history to illustrate each of the 48 laws that, that he outlines. And it can be potentially viewed upon as a kind of a manipulative kind of book and stuff, but it's kind of Machiavellian in the sense that it kind of lays it out the way, you know, the people relate with one another and how people you know, I mean, our politicians today and uh, many of the thought leaders out there, how they manipulate or and, and manipulates a bad word. It doesn't sound good, but it's it's basically how life happens. Create laws of power. That is very interesting. It was written in the year 2000 and uh, it, it was an enjoyable read. It was memorable. You asked me today about that, about a non-related book, uh-huh. the book. And that's one that does come to mind. Okay. Well, that's great. 48 Laws of Power. I definitely have not heard of that one. Um, Okay. And then our last wrap-up question is that we ask everybody is, when you think of someone you admire, what is a trait they have that has made them be successful? I would say charisma. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. I think charisma, uh, really believing in whatever, you know, you look at leadership and whether you're trying to inspire a student or work with a producer, uh, the, the folks that I look up to in my industry have charisma. And there's a lot of them out there. I mean, Tom Field at the University of Nebraska is one that just oozes oh, yeah. charisma. Uh, Dan Thompson uh, yes. is another person that just uh, 
is, you know, they just, they believe in it and they, they really electrify a person. And, and it, it, though, I think that's really my, the best I can think with, with leadership is charisma. That's two great examples of that. I've had the, I mean, I had the, I worked for Dr. Thompson when I was in, uh, after I got my master's degree at the Beef Cattle Institute and then was, have the, have been fortunate to work with Dr. Field, um, through Red Angus with our strategic planning. And I have to wholeheartedly agree with you that they both just, like you said, ooze charisma. And that's a, a great answer. And, and I was a, I was a fellow graduate student with Tom and, Back then, when I was 23 years old, he was very—he was an older student. He was a non-traditional. He come back from the ranch, and he—he he was just—I mean, I can't explain it. He was just one of those people that you listen to, and uh, you were willing to jump up, go up the hill, you know. And and uh, it's carried through his entire professional life, and it's—it's uh, it's great to watch a classmate uh, like that really make such an impact on our industry as well as dr thompson too i mean dan and i uh colleagues work together on a couple different projects and interact uh from here and again from you know occasionally we'll we'll bounce together and it's just something that uh those two individuals really leave an impression on you Absolutely. I, uh, we was fortunate to have Dr. Thompson on the podcast here as well. And so it, for those who are listening, be sure after you listen to Dr. Blasey's interview, make sure you go listen to Dr. Thompson because it was another really good one too. So well, those are great. Those were great answers. Thank you for sharing those. You're welcome. Um, sadly, that is all the time that we have for today. But Dr. Blasey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It made me so happy that you were going to come on and talk with me. And uh, the audience did not get to hear all the catching up that we had before we started. But um, I hope that it is not so long before I see your face again. And thank you for being on the show with us. You're welcome, Randy. If people want to um, learn more about your work or the stalker unit, because we didn't even really get into all the technology that you have done at the unit. So if people want to learn more about those things, um, where is what is the best way to learn more about that or get a hold of you? Well, our website here on campus is KSU Beef. Okay. KSUBeef.org. And uh, from there, you can get into the animal science department and uh, you can I would look up the beef. I would look at the entire department. I would encourage anybody. And and one thing that had been said, Brandy, is our our entire building. We're building a new horse pavilion. It's oh. going to be starting early early twenty twenty four. And our animal science building is. Uh, we're going to build a, a complete complex, uh, which encompasses uh, the grain sciences department a remodel of Call Hall and Weber Hall as well. So we have some really exciting things on the horizon happening at Kansas State. We got a we got wonderful leadership at our upper administration. They believe in agriculture and they walk the talk. And uh, it's really an exciting time to be a part of Kansas State. It does sound very exciting. I had heard about the that they were going to redo um, Weber and kind of make it join call and things like that. I'm going to have to figure out how to get one of those seats out of Weber 123 as a souvenir for our barn or something like that. But that's go. very exciting. It's in it again. This is a huge plug for Kansas State University, the best animal science program, time and again proven to be the best animal science program in the United States. So, um, thanks in large part to professors just like you, Dr. Blasey. So, thank you. Um, 
Thank you very much for coming on. I have put ksubeef.org in the footnotes for our followers, but you can also go to asi.ksu.edu and see the larger department. So thank you again for joining us, Dr. Blasey. I hope to see you soon. Best to you and Hyatt and your kid. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for joining us. And we hope that you will see you next week on the Beef Podcast. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.